With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Midweek Fix with me, Jamie Home. I hope you're all keeping well and have been enjoying the Euros as much as I have been. Uh, I think it's fair to say there's been some pretty decent games since we last caught up. Um, so tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the storylines that have come out of the Euros as well as some of the breaking news within domestic football. So with that in mind, I'm delighted to say joining me tonight, we have Phil Egan from Off The Ball Sports. We have journalist Dion Fanning and making his Trippers debut is sports writer Ryan Baldi. Gents, great to have you on. Ryan, welcome. How are things? Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you on, mate. So you're going to tell us a little bit about your book later on, but I'm going to come to you first, Dion, because um, I want to kick off with the Euros because I've had a bit of a love affair or a battle, I should say, with um, international football as a whole. Um, and to be honest, it's not something that has ever got me overly excited. Um, certainly since the days I was a youngster, uh, it's just not been the same since I think club allegiances have kind of taken over. But I have to say, this tournament, it's absolutely blown me away. Um, as I said, I think international has a bit of a bad rep. But from your eyes, just how good has this tournament been so far? Because it's kind of surpassed any expectation I had going into it. Yeah, I think it's been it's been great. Like I think something we've had a lot in tournaments recently is a, a quite a good or very good group stages, um, and people get very excited. And then the once the knockout games come around, um, that seems to just disappear very quickly, and they settle down into um, you know very cagey, very boring matches. Uh, where the fear of losing kind of um, over over overwhelms everything else, but with the knockout games, with the last sixteen games, um, and in particular, I guess the games on Monday. But I think you know all the you know uh, um, Saturday's games, uh, Sunday's games were 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 good as well. But I think Monday's games obviously were so exceptional that that seemed to you know the 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 dynamic, uh, the dynamics of the group stages just seem to kind of accelerate into the into the knockout stages, which really makes it good because you can't have, um, you can't have a great competition if if it just falls apart when you get to the knockout stages, when you get to the huge games, and um, and I think part of it as well is I do think some of it is to do with the fact that there is there are weaknesses in the teams. Some of the teams aren't. Uh, very, you know, I thought like the Denmark Czech Republic game, like you know, uh, um, you know, th- it wasn't like you're you're not looking at um, phenomenal teams, but it just makes for exciting football, uh, and it has been exceptional. And as I said, without sounding like a broken record, I think Monday is the point where everyone go like it, it's um, it's it's sort of transformative and everybody then is looking at going this is this is an exceptional tournament yeah it's in, it's interesting that you say about the the standard uh of the of the football because that's something that's kind of been uh been thrown at the tournament a little bit and i think from from your side phil i mean when you sit and watch the games sorry, you to... holland holland czech republic sorry jamie not Denmark. no no worries mate no worries um yeah, when when you kind of look at it, Phil, do you kind of share Dion's sentiments in terms of the quality of the football? Or are you are you on a different side of the fence? Well, I, I think we're obviously being entertained. If you didn't enjoy Monday, then I can't do anything for you because that for <laughs> me that that five hours was some of the most unbelievable sport I've ever watched in terms yeah. of international football. To have games that like going into Monday's games, I thought Spain, Croatia, two teams that like to keep possession. This could be quite cagey. Obviously, Spain had scored five in the previous game, but we know Morata isn't exactly 
clinical and Croatia haven't scored that many goals. So I thought, yeah, this this could be cagey enough. Then, obviously, it was an absolutely crazy game. France-Switzerland, you think, well, look how France won the World Cup. They just got it done. Think back to how they beat Germany earlier in the tournament. And then that game just was crazy as well. So yesterday wasn't as as good, but there is, there's a mix of, th- obviously, you've got entertainment and you've got quality. So not necessarily the quality has been at the highest level, but certainly we've been entertained. And I think there's a few factors. Obviously, we've been starved of football with fans and an atmosphere. We've been watching sterilized football for the last 16 months where we've tried to be, we've been trying to convince ourselves it's good because some of us watch the games with crowd noise and it seems like it's legit, but it's not. You see what happens yesterday. There was footage going around of when England went 1-0 up. Uh, I saw a journalist had posted the fans jumping around, just limbs going everywhere. That's what football is about. Whereas the last 16 months, you're looking at players running to a corner to celebrate in an empty stadium. Yeah. I mean, most of us have played in empty stadiums and <laughs> it's it's great cracking all to play in them, but professional footballers want the buzz of the crowd there. And I think towards the end of the season, when fans started to come back in, it definitely got the interest perked again and we've waited five years for this tournament i've always enjoyed tournament football i know what you mean about international football can get a bad rep because some of the qualification campaigns could be absolutely dreadful but these are the things you have to go through to get to the tournament and then that's the main event so next time say in september when the world cup qualifiers come along and you think geez this isn't great just think ahead to the 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 prize at the end Ryan, you've got a. There's a few comments coming in about your uh, your jersey there, mate. Can you just clear up what uh, what jersey you're wearing? Oh, you're on mute there, mate. Do you want to unmute yourself? Sorry, yeah, it's, it's the LA Clippers. I'm a big Boston Celtics fan, but I've got my Kawhi Leonard LA Clippers jersey on tonight. So yeah, I saw, I'm sure a few people ask it. <laughs> uh, what have you made of the tournament so far, mate? Were you like everybody else on on Monday on the edge of your seat? Because oh, as yeah, Phil says, yeah. it was it was one one of the best nights football I think I've had in a long time. It was one of those nights where every five minutes your jaw is just dropping further towards the floor, isn't it? Because something else is happening. There'd be an incredible goal, like that Benzema goal, the first touch for that. Then Pogba goes and bangs one in the top corner and you think, okay, you know, France are here, they've arrived, they've put everyone on notice. But then 10 minutes later, we're into extra time and they're, they're struggling, they're, they're looking fatigued and Kylian Mbappe is having a nightmare. But yeah, I've really enjoyed the entertainment, the quality of football, like you guys have said, has been really great and to have the fans back. Um, an aspect of it that I'm finding really fascinating as well is that it seems to me that there's kind of... Um, two different generations sort of converging in, in, in this one tournament. You've got the guys on the way out, like the Luca Modric's, the Ronaldo's, uh, some of the Italian guys, Chiellini and, and so forth. Even guys like Hazard, who are probably slightly past their peak now. Um, but then you've got the emerging generation who are here as well. So you've got these these, these players in one of their last chances of, of international glory. And then you've got this new generation like the Mbappes who didn't quite, wasn't quite able to step up, like all the young English players who are coming through. Uh, to see them really thriving as well. It's been really interesting to see that that dynamic of play is something I've really enjoyed. Dion, a couple of the lads uh, that touch on, on something there around, you know, fans being back in the stadium. How much do you put, because look, I've, it's been well documented on this podcast over the course of last season that, that I got in a, a bit of a hump with Premier League football, with no fans and VAR and the direction that the game was moving. Whereas for me, it's very much seemed like a lot of that nonsense has disappeared. It feels now like we've nearly got proper football back. Is it, you know, th- whether it's the fans, VAR isn't seeming to infringe as much on on the games. How much of this entertainment and excitement do you put down to having fans back in the stadium? Oh, I think it's huge. I think it's um, it's a massive thing, and I think it's a massive thing uh, um, in terms of our, our engagement too. As Phil said, like we all. Um, we all pretended that we were okay um, with what we were watching. Like just happy to have it back. That, yeah, but I, but actually, I think at times, like I, I do, I, I did say at some stage last season, and I felt like last season's Premier League and last season football would be would be forgotten quicker than any season in history because you know, once crowds come back, people won't want to be reminded. I like, like I believe actually with the whole coronavirus thing, and you see this going back in history with like. You know, the, you know, the flu epidemic, you know, Spanish flu epidemic and all this, that people actually 
stopped talking about it the minute it was over. There was very little written about it. And I think it's such a grim time and it's such a, you know, it's a tragic time for lots of people. But it's also, if you're lucky, the best you're having is a really, really boring time in the pandemic. It's just been incredibly boring and people want to get out of it. And football was like that. And we all put up with it because it was the only, it was just marginally better to have it than not to have it. But to have it back now the way it is, uh, is phenomenal. I think people are engaging with it. You look at even like in Ireland, you know, we're not not Ireland being there and and the viewing figures for it are huge. Like they're really, lots of people are watching it. I think that is because just that energy and emotion and, and happiness you get from seeing the crowds. And obviously there's been some standout games where the crowd and the communion of the crowd with the supporters, like Denmark, Russia being the like most obvious example because of everything. Like that was, uh, I think everybody was just <laughs> engaged by, by that on so many different levels because because of what we've been through, because then people saw what happened with Christian Eriksen and the two, the two factors combining that you had this crowd in Copenhagen on such a special night for Denmark um, has meant that people are really, are really engaged with it in a way that they haven't been. Uh, and, you know, you don't get, if you're a casual, okay, a lot more casual fans watch tournaments anyway, especially in the countries where, you know, that are involved. But if you're a casual football fan, f- football without crowds, those games aren't something you sit, like how many times did you, like I had this experience so many times last year where it's a game you're looking forward to because you have the, the, the historic memory of what this fixture is, and then you sit down to watch it, you know, like Spurs Arsenal or something, and you sit down to watch it, and it's Spurs Arsenal in an empty stadium, you're going, yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> I can't, like, I will do this, but I won't, and like, so... That I sense. nearly felt guilty sometimes, though, Dean. I was like, I, I'm a football fan. I have to sit here for the 90 minutes and watch this game because that's what we do. But after 20 minutes, I'm, I was having this internal battle with myself thinking, this just isn't the same. Yeah. And I think, and I think, and so I think for people who aren't that engaged, this is a tournament then that actually re-engages people. And and I actually believe as well in an Irish context, it's been hugely <laughs> significant in terms of the public mood because uh, you look at what's happening in sport in Ireland and there's, you know, 100, 200 people at matches in huge stadiums. And it's kind of ridiculous that we haven't kind of got any kind of outdoor functioning outdoor system for anything you know forgetting about all the other stuff that's happened but the outdoor sporting arenas haven't been there's been no real faith placed in them and then people are and i don't and i actually think governments aren't governments and politicians aren't plugged into something like the euros the way the people are and then the people are watching denmark russia and then they're looking at what's happening in their own country going well, this is crazy. This is Denmark. This isn't some, this isn't like some crazy country. This isn't Victor Orban's Hungary. Like this is sensible, rational Denmark that are letting people into their grounds. Why have we got a hundred people in a 30,000 uh, capacity stadium? So like it's had a huge effect in ways that I think people don't really, or some people don't even understand. One of the things, uh, one of the things that I I've kind of had a, a battle with is uh, is my son. He's he's nine now, nine years old, and trying to to get him to sit down and watch a full ninety minutes is a challenge at times because we've mentioned it a few times on this podcast before. They're for, they're a fortnight generation now, um, and ultimately what they're doing is they have a really short attention span. So I'm trying to ultimately get him to sit and sit and watch the the full games. And what I've found is now that we're into the knockout stages, um, the, the, the kind of risk reward that we're seeing, particularly, I think it was the Croatia game. And you mentioned it before, Phil, about it being some of the best entertainment you've seen. When you get into knockout football, it's just different, isn't it? You know, you've got 10, 15 minutes to go and a team's one nil down and they start throwing the kitchen sink at it. And I know I was sat there with my son and you could see, you could see that the game was building. You could see that Croatia were throwing more people forward. You could see that something was going to happen at the end of the game. And then ultimately when you get those 89th minute goals, you just, you couldn't script it, could you? No, and the thing about those two games as well, you had two teams, 3-1 up with 10 minutes to go and two teams that you would think would be able to see out the game and then they, they get caught out. And I suppose going to the younger generation, this is something obviously, it came up actually with the 
with uh, Florentino Perez was talking about this crazy European Super League and how the, the younger generation don't watch 90 minutes anymore. And, you know, one crazy idea he had floated was maybe shorten the games. Now, I don't think it has to be that drastic, but because of the, the production of something like the Premier League, somebody can miss a game, but they can sit down and watch three minutes of highlights on YouTube. I get it in work. Some people... You, when you, you see people in the office the next day, you know, I'm not saying in our sports department, but other parts of the office where... You, you're going to name and shame there? No, 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 <laughs> definitely not. But there is certain people that will say, no, I just saw the goals. I just watched the highlights. And you can't judge a game on highlights. And yeah. But if we get entertainment like we did on Monday, then everyone's going to watch football. It's still such a popular game worldwide. Uh, you, you mentioned VAR. VAR has been a lot smoother. Unfortunately, when the Premier League season starts back, you'll remember why you hate VAR because the Premier League officials will be back and they'll have the lines out. They're a bit thicker next season, but they'll <laughs> still take an age to do it. I think the beauty of VAR at the, the Euros, the majority of the times, the, the decisions are done quickly. And that's all we want because football is meant to be fluid and you know the, you don't want breaks rugby obviously is always compared because they bring technology in but those players they they kind of like the break because there is a lot more set pieces in rugby whereas football needs to be played at pace that's the way you want to play it and if there's if there's a lull if there's break and play then the sting can go out of the game and uh, I'd be interested to see how VAR works in the Premier League when we come back but it's worked quite well so far at the Euros I was a fan of it after the World Cup going into the Premier League, but then after the way they've used it, I haven't been impressed by it. And it's just almost taken the emotion out of the game. But then again, that could also tie in with the fact that I felt the emotion was gone out of the game playing in empty stadiums as well. So, um, yeah, you, you can see now we're obviously heading into the quarterfinals. The stakes are getting that bit higher. You, you saw yesterday with England and Germany, that was what I would call a cagey game. But because of who it was, we sat there and we were intrigued by it to see who'd blink first. I think I think one of the one of, sorry, I think one of the other things just sorry Jamie, just on that, on the on the games and why like VAR obviously has you know, the way they've they've used it has been much better. I also think a significant thing has been the number of substitutions because like it's added to an element of kind of anarchy. Like if you look at Croatia Spain, like Croatia substituted, made six substitutions. Like it's more than half the team were replaced, which we only ever see in normally in like international friendlies. You know, there was that time when you know the Sven Goran Eriksson would bring on eleven substitutes in the second half. You know that kind of thing, and it would just totally break up the pattern of play. But now you're seeing it in international tournaments that they're making this huge, these huge amount of changes, and that's got to. And you know, Spain made five in that game, and it's. It's got to have an impact in terms of the, the cohesion and the and the sh- and the uh, the compactness, if you like, of teams that they've got. Practically a half a team is different at the end of the game than the beginning. So I think it, you know, there's a good reason for doing it, and the players are tired. But it also, I think, has has made games more open as well. Yeah, that that's definitely something that I think that was used well last night. Um, when you look at the the England Germany game, and and that's where I kind of want to go to next, and I'll come to you on this one, Ryan, because um, Gareth Southgate has had a lot of critics. Um, you know, the, England are never too far away from the news, um, and Southgate has certainly got a lot of stick for be albeit he's negative, he's pragmatic, whatever you want to call it, whichever side of the fence uh, the fence you sit on, um. He used his subs fantastically well last night, uh, you know, on reflection with hindsight. Um, I, I, look, I'll hold my hands up. I was not a fan of the starting 11 that was put in place. Uh, I, I certainly didn't hide that viewpoint on Twitter. Um, you know, any team that sets up with seven defensive minded players for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of. But, um, you know, on reflection, when you look at that, what have you made of England's tournament so far um, and, and particularly the result last night? It's been sensible, uh, which is probably, <laughs> if you're going to use one adjective to describe Gareth Southgate, that would be it, wouldn't it? Um, I think everybody second guesses him, um, but I think he's he's doing a good job. He's People get frustrated at the conservatism of it all because um, they want to see, you know, 
you want to see maybe Saka put a, a wing back and, and, and add an extra forward into that team, which is which is not not an unreasonable uh, opinion to hold. But um, I think we've seen through the years that, that conservative football wins tournaments. Um, even going back to the great Spain side of, of the mid two thousands and early twenty tens. They were a very conservative team. They just did it in a different way. They were conservative with the ball. They they won most of their games by a single goal. Um, and at times they weren't they weren't the most uh, thrilling to watch because they would you know, dictate the play of the game, dictate tempo, and slow things down to their pace and, and play the game on their terms. I think um, England have, have done that in a, in a bit of a different way by having some um, stifling tactics at time or, or, or using their, their pressing uh, in different ways at different levels of the pitch to to um, offset what the opposition is doing, which can, which can lead to a kind of disjointed feeling to the game. It can feel like the game is, is quite low in quality. Um, but it, so far, the, the approach is working. They're winning games by a small margin. So there's the, that means you know, you're going to question how sustainable that is going to be across the tournament. It only takes one. Uh, one one major error at the defensive end, and, and you're in trouble. Um, but yeah, like I said, conservative football tends to win tournaments. We, we saw that with France. The amount of great attacking players they've got, how often under Deschamps they've been very conservative. Um, even the great Brazil team of 2002, when they had Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, and, and Rivaldo up front, they still had two defensive midfielders uh, behind them. I think in international football, uh, there's just an in, inherent sort of risk averse. Uh, philosophy that pervades because like we've talked about the stakes are so high um the tension is so high uh um, and one mistake and you're out and, and that's you know, your dreams crushed for another two years or another four years and on the tournament you're going for so yeah like, like I've, I've been critical just as as everybody else has just as my group of friends have on our on our whatsapp chats we're all we've all got our own lineups we all want to see an extra attacker in there we all want to see a, a jack Grealish in there but i think it's also interesting to think about not only the starting lineups but the closing lineups um yeah. Particularly as it as it relates to international football and tournaments, because um, having game changes like um, like a Jack Grealish or a Jaden Sancho, I think we'd, we'd all like to see more of. Um, with that ability to come on and run at tired legs, um, is is a really uh, really handy tool to have in the back pocket. And it's something that England haven't always had in abundance. That kind of level of attacking attacking threat in such depth, I don't think, uh, in my lifetime, I don't think I've seen such such quality and depth in the attacking position. So there are always going to be good good players who miss out. Um, but but equally, these are players who can come in and change a game. If, if you look at what you're going to close a game with as much as what you're starting a game with, then I think you can see there are a lot of options and a lot of weapons for, for England to use. And I think Southgate, so far, has, has used them fairly well. Phil, do you think then, you know, his selections last night were justified in by the result? Because I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And let's say that Muller puts his chance away. That game is the, the perception of that game is completely different. Um, you know, England ultimately go up the other end and get the second goal. Absolutely fine. But, you know, I think when you set out your stall to be so defensive, was it just a case of Southgate saying, look, let's just get through this game. We can be a little bit more expansive now with the likes of a Ukraine. You'd look to freshen it up potentially with a Jordan Henderson coming in and maybe a Jack Grealish will get, in my opinion, his deserved start. But do you think all in all now the decision that he made was was justified or do you think Southgate seems to have nine lives and just keeps rolling on? <laughs> no, it's it's purely, it's it's results driven, isn't it? And you, you mentioned the Muller chance, but what happens if Timo Werner, I know Chelsea fans have been saying that all season, <laughs> what happens if Timo Werner puts away that chance and they're 1-0 down? Like Gareth Southgate is so cautious that it, it's almost, uh, it's ballsy because you look at the team selection and let's be honest, it's not a great Germany team. So, yeah. if, if, you know, the way he set up the team yesterday, if Germany beat England yesterday, Southgate is under unbelievable pressure. And he's under pressure anyway. Just think of the, the Croatia win, the next game, the nil-all draw with Scotland, they get booed off at the end. They obviously have qualified before the Czech Republic game, they get the job done there. And, you know, they've beaten Germany. This is seen as a big win, first knockout win over Germany at a major tournament in 55 years. You know, a big name. But say, for example, they went out now on Saturday night and lost to Ukraine and he went cautious to be people calling for his head. So it's purely down to results. I'm sure he's justified. But if, you know, it's it's a game of fine margins and you can say that most teams that win a tournament will have moments in a tournament where things get a bit hairy for them. 
you think back to even Germany winning the World Cup in 2014. They obviously hammered Brazil in the final. But Argentina had chances in that final. Higuain missed chances in that game. They, you know, the narrative obviously is that Germany dominated that World Cup and they were worthy champions. So what they're doing and what Gareth is doing, it's working at the moment. You would imagine it will work against Ukraine because he can go back to a 4-3-3. That's the way Ukraine will set up. Um, I'd, I'd imagine Mason Mount comes back in because, you know, he, he was isolating. He wasn't training with the squad. He could have been brought in yesterday that wouldn't have been an issue I don't think but I would imagine Mason Mount comes in into midfield he might decide to take Rice or Phillips out both on yellow cards yellow cards don't get cleared until the quarterfinals and then maybe he starts Jack Grealish I thought Saka started well and he was justified to start the game after his performance against the Czechs but now maybe Grealish gets his his run on the left hand side and he can throw Sterling over to the right hand side Harry Kane is always going to start I thought he was pretty poor yesterday. Two touches in the first half an hour. There was one stage he went down in the second half and Southgate asked him, was he all right? And in my head, I was wondering, was Southgate thinking, you know what, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Make this easy for me. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's undroppable because he's the captain. Now he's scored, you have to play him, but he doesn't look sharp at all. No, no, I think you're dead right. And and Dion, I was going to come to you on on the, the Harry Kane situation because is there a conversation to be had there? Because like Phil, I was watching that game and, and it looked like he was running, uh, pulling a fridge. You know, he was stuck in treacle as he was moving around the pitch. He wasn't pressing. He wasn't overly sharp. Uh, he wasn't actually keeping the ball. Uh, you know, he wasn't taking the ball in. He wasn't occupying defenders. He just didn't really seem to be doing that much. Um, I think it's kind of suited him at Spurs a little bit because he's been able to drop off into the pockets, receive the ball turn, and then he's got willing runners in behind him in the likes of Son. But And I think that was probably the plan for England in a way, you know, with the likes of Saka and Sterling in around him is that they would run in behind. I think Southgate alluded to that in, in his press conference afterwards. But he just seems like a man that's either A, unfit, or just painfully out of form and confidence. Yeah, but I think... The, the the train is now it, it, the train is now a runaway train. There's no there's no there's no catching this train now. There is no talking. If it's you coming talk, home. <laughs> if you can talk sense to a train, there's no talking sense to it now. Like it is gone. Like that that opportunity is gone uh, to say, oh, maybe we need to um, do something about Harry Kane because, as you say, like, he got the goal, and I think that that is all that's going to. That's all that matters, and you could see that in reaction. Now, Gareth Southgate isn't going to be judged by the the media response to it necessarily. Although I think he's probably, you know, there are certain aspects of how he deals with the media. I think are are, are almost overtly conscious of what people are saying, like the stuff yesterday, as you said before and after the game about you know thinking about his teammates from Euro '96 and you know, the little thought he had. And, you know, he said this, hit his line beforehand about he can't provide closure for them. It's like, for, for fuck's sake, you missed a penalty 25 <laughs> years ago. It's not like, this is not... I think he said know, he, he saw Dave not, Seaman this, on the big screen. Yeah, I know. Like, it's just, yeah, come on. Like, it's not that... <laughs> honestly, like, it's a, it's a lie because those players don't think like that about Gareth Southgate. They don't... They're not going... It's like when journalists ask, play, you know, players about a game, will you be thinking of if Ireland are playing France, does ask some Irish player, will you be looking for revenge for the Henri handball? And, and football, you know, footballers, they'd be looking at them and what the fuck are you talking about? You know, I'm not, that's not how we think. And that's not how footballers think. But I do think now, like, it was extraordinary. I agree with Phil. Like, I thought, I thought England were pretty terrible for a lot of the game uh, yesterday. And um it's one of those it's one of those situations once that once the victory comes that the result makes sense of the whole thing that suddenly it's like look at this and maybe there's a there's, there is a truth in that too because the game lasts 90 minutes and you 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 play the full 90 minutes as ryan says and you use your substitutes but at the same time they were bad for for a lot of it and, and harry kane was terrible um and if if then they are ifs, but if those, if Muller had scored, if 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 uh, if other things had happened, that would have been it would have been a very different game. But in tournament football, with a country, well, any country, we all get hysterical around tournament football. Then the the results are the only thing that matters, and then it's like this is we're just the the the, the bandwagon moves on, 
Um, and I don't think there's any chance of there being any kind of Harry Kane conversation. I don't know what I don't think Southgate would drop him anyway. Um, maybe some of the changes. I still think he's going to be very cautious. Like, like would he? Will he drop? Will he? Like, would he think of Rice or Phillips on a on a on a yellow card? He might just look at that. But I would he just think that that's almost like being a bit bit overconfident to say we're thinking about a semi final. Um, and I'll leave one of them out and play an attacking player because, you know, if you go back and this is like, you know, I was thinking, you know, England played Cameroon in 1990 in the quarterfinal and they were already, they that was a game they thought that they were going to actually, uh, that was going to be a comfortable game at just a little stop off on the way to the semifinal. And that was one of those games that they probably were complacent going into. And I think Ukraine have some talented players who actually, if England did, don't do the things in so you know, kind of counter to what I've been saying, if they don't do some of the things they have been doing and working hard and closing players down, that they do have players who could actually hurt them. Ryan Jack Grealish can't do much more to get a start at this stage, can he? He's come on another assist, and you can just see the look. I'm going to go into Jack uh, Jack Grealish fanboy mode again here now. Um, you can just see the stadium lift up. And I say this as just a football fan. I love watching him as a Liverpool fan. I don't care who he plays for. Well, maybe we're going to come on to the fact he might join City later on. I might have to change my view on that one. But, you know, he's the type of player whenever he gets the ball, you just hear the hum of the supporters, everybody getting off their seats, everybody getting excited. And again, he's delivered. He's he's delivered in a big way. That's two game, two appearances now, two assists. Surely he must be he's getting his start soon. You think so? And like we talked about the with the level of opposition on paper at least dropping off a little bit from here up until uh, hypothetically in the final, then <clears throat> there's no reason not to not to put him in there. Um, and I and I think uh, it, it all goes to show that, that Grealish is one of these players who kind of lives for the moment. I think he absolutely thrives being out there in front of a close to full Wembley Stadium, feeling the, the pressure. Uh, he's he's one of these players, players with a smile on his face. Um, there have been comparisons to Ronaldinho, which I think flatter him, of course. Um, <laughs> as a footballer, he's not quite there yet, but you can see where... Who made that? Was that his mum? Was that his yeah, mum that said yeah. that one? <laughs> uh, but in terms of, of a player who brings a smile, he's that sort of guy. He looks to entertain. Um, I did a big piece on, on, on Jack Grealish for, for BBC Sport uh, last year, where I spoke to a lot of his youth coaches, and they, they say he's always been this kind of person who... He's a leader in his own way. He kind of embraces the moment. He'll put the team on his shoulders uh, and he's not afraid of the pressure moments. Um, and I think that's shown. He's coming to tight, tight games and he's provided a spark, um, kind of reliably so as well. It, it, you just get the impression that when he's got the ball at his feet, he's going to make something happen. And he did. You, you saw the way he linked with Luke Shaw for the, for the two goals at the end of, of the Germany game. Even after he came on, a couple of his touches didn't quite go for him. His, his head didn't drop. Um, so I think he's got really kind of unshakable self-belief. And um, that's why he's the sort of player who I think is built for these tournaments, built for these kind of moments, and is someone that uh, England should be relying upon, I think, and really looking to to, to, to be the fulcrum of, of, of their attacking efforts. Because, like we've touched upon, that there hasn't been a great deal of creativity. Um, it's not going to come from midfield when you're playing Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips. It's, it's your two central players. Um, so maybe it's got to come from somebody like Grealish dropping in and getting the ball to feet and, and looking to link and make things happen from there. Because Sterling's been wonderful, but he's uh, he's at his best when he's he's being direct. He's running straight at players or running off the ball and looking to get in behind. And like we said, Kane has been somewhat of a disappointment so far. So to have someone who's a real reliable, creative spark who you can get who you can get the ball to them and then to their feet and just know that they've got something about them and they can, they can, they can make something happen for you. Um, I don't think you can ignore that for too much longer. Yeah, I seen it was an interesting uh, line from Paul Merce and he comes out with a few of them where uh, he basically uh, alluded to the fact that Jack Grealish was a big problem because if Southgate plays him and he plays well, then he gives him a headache that he doesn't really want. And I'm sitting there thinking, hold on, one of your players plays well and therefore that then becomes a problem. It just was, uh, yeah, it seems like he's he's not necessarily a Southgate type player. Um, I think there's this perception within the England camp that maybe Southgate doesn't fancy him going the other direction. But for me, I'd be I'd be building a team around him and, and letting him do uh, do whatever role he wants, to be honest. And I think that's a, a, a misconception about Jack, mm. Jack Grealish. I think he, he does work hard. Yeah. Um, Villa are one of the, the top pressing sides in the league um, and, and he, he certainly does 
does um, pressure the ball. He does. You don't want Jack Greedish running back towards his own goal. Don't get me wrong, but certainly from an offensive pressing position, uh, he's he's certainly um, strong in that area. Now, Phil, I want to want to come to you because I don't want this to become an England uh, Euros show because um, we certainly got a lot of Irish viewers, and I don't want to alienate them. Too That's much. why we're talking about Jack Greenish, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You're a brave man. Uh, Declan Rice is up next. No, but um, yeah, I think from your side, looking outside of obviously the England camp, who have been the, the the big surprises for you or who have been the kind of big standouts, whether that's from a team perspective or maybe some of the individuals that have stood out for you as well? Well, we mentioned Ukraine. I'm surprised Ukraine have got this far. Even watching the game last night, you felt that if you were an England fan, you want to face Ukraine. Saw them in the group stage. Uh, Austria nullified them. Basically, Alaba did a job and Yarmolenko, um, you know, they rallied against the Dutch in the first game. They, everyone in that group beat North Macedonia. So Sweden actually did them a favour when they beat Poland that Ukraine got through. So I don't think Ukraine will cause too many problems for England if England have the right attitude. I had picked Denmark as a, a dark horse before the game. Irish fans know Denmark inside out, but they've got better. I just looked down the spine of the team. Obviously, Kier has had a very good season for AC Milan. We know how good Casper Schmeichel is. Hjoiberg, you know, he, he actually he's he's a far more creative player with Denmark. He's actually created a lot of chances. He's he's in the the top six of chances created after the group stage. He was, and then obviously the, the bit of magic was Christian Eriksen. We all know what happened in the game against Finland, and I thought. With that, I, I didn't know how Denmark would react, but it's galvanised them. They were so good against Wales. And if they beat the Czech Republic, I think they'll give England plenty of headaches in a semi-final. But see, the, the, the way this tournament is going, teams are picking each other off where the Czechs could end up taking Denmark out. Not many people pick Denmark, or sorry, the Czechs to beat Holland the other day. But once Dilik got sent off, that changed the whole game and they, they were able to seal the deal. So Italy obviously were the standout team in the group stage. The fact that they're playing Belgium, that takes out one of the big guns. I said it's all just it's all coming up nicely for England to get to a final and probably play you're you're gonna be playing Italy, Spain or Belgium. Um, Switzerland could give Spain a few problems as well. They're obviously well organized. They've got this blonde hair guy in midfield. Some Premier League sh- clubs should sign a wand of a left foot. He's unrecognisable, Grant Jacket. This is what international football does. Tournaments, players get moves. L.R.J. Juve syndrome, this, isn't it? L.R.J. Juve, Cal It's amazing how we always forget it, though, isn't it? Like yeah. you spend, we get sucked in every like, single time. It's every time, like you're lucky. God, that guy's good. He could, he's, he, you know, somebody's got to sign him. But like we forget yeah. every tournament. Who's uh, this Paul Pogba? This Paul Pogba. Yeah, he's all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, the, obviously the other side of the draw for for England is a lot tougher. If Belgium can get through Italy, that's a big if, though, because obviously there's serious doubts over De Bruyne and Hazard. But if they were to get over them, then Hazard and De Bruyne are closer to, to full fitness. And Lukaku is in unbelievable form. And he's just, again, a player that would have been ridiculed for the way he played for Manchester United. You know, his second touch was a tackle. That kind of thing was thrown at him. But when you see him running at defenders, it's frightening. And he showed in the Denmark game that, you know, he has the vision to to, to pick a pass as well. So, uh, yeah, like I, still, I think the way it's looking, you're looking at in England-Denmark semi-final, I find it really hard to pick between Italy and Belgium. Um, and then I, I think Spain will get through that one. So, like I had picked France as my team to to win before the the tournament, but they self destructed the other night. Deschamps picked a, a horrible formation. There's talk that there was rows going on on the pitch that happens in football, but there was rows going on with player families and representatives in the stands as well. So, just the French obviously believed that they were going to just turn up and win this tournament, and it hasn't happened. And it just means now is an opportunity for someone to go and make themselves heroes. 
There's never a dull day, is there, with the within the French camp? It's like uh, it's like an episode of Desperate Scousewives, you know, that, that we used to be on years ago. There's uh, there's always a soap opera. Dion, how about yourself? Where how do you kind of see it panning out? And and it kind of feels like Phil says it feels like the the Spain Belgium game could uh, not Spain Belgium Italy Belgium uh, could quite comfortably be the final. You know, they they seem to be the teams for me that on paper have been the strongest. I think Italy have surprised us all with their offensive in 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 how offensive that they've been it's not really a throwback to the Italian teams of old where do you sit on this one who who do you kind of see as your favorites um I would I would I would like I think the winner of of Italy Belgium like that's a pretty obvious thing to say but I I would uh think the winner of of that game is 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 the most likely but I do also think I think Denmark in a in a in a strange way, or are, are, are the most not in a strange way at all. I think they're the most complete team there. Italy and and, and Denmark, I think, in, in their own ways, are, are probably like two of the most uh, cohesive teams in the competition. Um, I like Phil says he thinks Czech Republic could cause a problem. I think the Czech Republic. Are, I do like I like they did beat they beat Holland. Okay, but I I thought I think they're I think they're a very very ordinary team. Um, uh, but then there are a lot of ordinary teams, and it's actually like when we go back and we talk about the players who jump out and stand out. Like that is one of the things. That is one of the reasons, I guess, because you are dealing with a lot of ordinary teams. And actually, just to go back to the Jack Grealish thing, I think that, and to bring an Irish kind of context into that as well, that is why this idea of focusing on what he can't do at international football is really stupid. Because look at look at look at Jacka. Look at these players. Like you get more time, you get more room, you get opportunities in international football that you don't get in the Premier League. Um, and like Ireland spent, you know, Ireland had, were, you know, were, were managed by Trapattoni and Martin O'Neill for ten years, who were entirely focused on what players couldn't do. Um, when you know someone like Wes Hoolahan could have just been running in, you know, international games for for most of you know for years because of what he could do. Uh, and the same is true of Grealish. Like you don't need you, in international football, enough mistakes will be made. There will be enough space that if you have a player like that, he will capitalize. Um, and that's what you see all through through the competition. Um, I I think I do think I think on the other half of the, like I think England will get by Ukraine. I think, and then I think I, yeah, I agree with Phil. Like I think Denmark are. As I said, I think they're a really, really strong team. I think Damsgaard has been has been excellent for them. Uh, you know, from the Russia game on, um, and England, if they get through, like we've talked about it, like their, their hysteria will be so great at that stage. But that will be a really tough game for them. Um, so I'm going to go. <sighs> I think I'd say Italy. I think I'd say if Belgium, I think Italy might get just scraped through that, and I think I'd go for Italy overall. Anyone different for you, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I think I fancy Belgium to come through that one, but it, I think it will be dependent on on how um, Hazard and uh, De Bruyne are doing. Because I think they both went off with with uh, injuries didn't they in the last game. So uh, you know, two of their most talented players. It was a really brutal game as well. That was a lot of. Um, of challenges from from particularly from the Portugal anyway. So Hazard was getting kicked all over the place, um, and I think that they're, they're going to bear the bruises of that into the next game or two. Um, but talent wise, you know, Belgium has got so much quality in abundance there, and um, I think Phil, Phil touched on how great Lukaku has been. Uh, he's a real real force who's come into his own last year or two in Italy, um, delivering on all the potential we saw in him in his early years in the Premier League he's, he's right up there with the best strikers in the world now um, he'll, he'll take some stop and even even when he doesn't have a great game or if, if he's not on the score sheet he's got that ability to threaten um, in behind and, and just keep defenders occupied with his you know the mass of his movement and the the, uh, the the physicality he brings and the quality that he brings so um I think they're, they're going to take some stock. And I, I do like this Italy team. I've been very impressed by it. I think we all have. They look really, really well organised under Mancini. And they're also, they've got that bit of adventure to them. Spinners always look great. Uh, they've got three or four midfield players who look really great on the ball, are able to create chances. Um, so they're a really well, well, uh, well-rounded side. Um, 
look really impressive. They're the type of team who, if they come up against someone who aren't on their game for for ninety minutes, they'll be able to expose that. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I fancy Belgium to get through as long as the fitness levels of their best two or three players are, are there to get to, to. You know, are going to be there for them. Um, and then on the other end, I, I do think um, it's, it's opening up for England. Um, I have more faith in this England team than, than, than past England teams, even those with of the, of the so-called golden generation of the, of the mid two thousands. I, I think there's it might be out of hope more than expectation, but for the first time in quite a long time, I just, I just find them really likable. There are so many likable characters in this team. You kind of want to root for them. Where that's, that's a strange feeling, isn't it? It is. It is to me by surprise. I, I empathise with your thoughts uh, earlier on when you were saying you kind of fell out of love with international football. England for so long were just boring and and and, and constantly failed to deliver on expectations. They can still be boring now. Um, but there's always that capacity for, for a, a bit of magic with, with these vibrant young players who've got an attack. So, um, yeah, I do have quite a bit of faith in them and it does feel strange. Yeah, I do think for, for what it's worth, I think the draw is definitely opening up for, for England. Um, I could see it being an England-Belgium final um, and that could be that could could be a toss-up. I've just got a funny feeling that Southgate seems to be the type of manager that will just... That will just that will, I think I do that every single podcast. I think I turn myself on mute, or maybe it's people in the comments that want me to shut up and are turning me on mute. But uh, yeah, for for what it's worth, I, I've got a funny feeling it could be England Belgium in the final, and that will be uh, that will be a toss of a coin. Now, um, moving on from the Euros, because there's a couple of interesting storylines that have been coming out um, on the domestic side of things um, that I want to get your opinions on, and I'm going to come to you first, Phil, because one of the stories, and it's two players that we've spoken about tonight already, um, and that is that Manchester. The City off the back of Pep Guardiola revealing last season that they had no money to spend on strikers now has put his hand down the back of the sofa and seems to have found some loose change uh, enough to potentially buy Harry Kane and while he's at it is after Jack Grealish for a room at 100 million um, when you first read the, this stories what did you make of it Do you think there's something in it and, and what was your reaction yeah I, I thought when I with Kane first I mean, it's pretty obvious Kane wants to get away from Spurs. He's He's been there. He's come close to winning nothing. Okay, They got to the Champions League final. Incidentally, he should never have started that game, um, but he did. And I think Liverpool, when they saw his name in the team sheet, were quite happy that an, an unfit Harry Kane, it seems to be a pattern developing. We're talking about an unfit Harry Kane. And I wonder, would that worry Manchester City? But you know, if he signed for Manchester City, all the chances they create... He's going to bang in 30 goals a season. Now, for all the money City have, they don't. I think tend... you could, Phil, to be honest. If you were playing well, off the City, some of the chances they create. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen me play. <laughs> grand in my own half, but uh, once I get over the halfway line, nosebleeds. And, but look, we, we've seen what Pep Guardiola has done with Raheem Sterling. He's turned him into a goal scorer. And even his goal yesterday was the most Raheem Sterling like goal where he's in the middle and he can't really miss. And that you just think of the chances Harry Kane would get. But in terms of the price tag, obviously because he's an England international, um, now I wonder is his price tag starting to just diminish a little bit with each performance. But City have never gone that big. They tend to spend, you know, they, they buy players for 40 and 50 million. Sometimes they go up to 60, but they never go up to 100 million. And Levy, we know, is uh, not a the person you want to negotiate with. So you've got City who really want Harry Kane. You've got Spurs who don't want to sell him. So I, I just wonder, is he going to get priced out of a move away? And I kind of feel the same about Grealish. But I think Grealish is a different a different situation where I think he really loves being at Villa. He loves, he's the local lad. He's the main man. Villa have money. Villa are start, are investing. They're, they're on the up. I mean, there was... It did look like they were going to get some European football next season, but actually when Grealish got injured, the, the results started to fall off. But I don't think Grealish is that as desperate to get away from his club as Harry Kane is. It, you would imagine City would want to get at least one of them. I'd be very surprised if they got the two of them. But it's a fairly frightening prospect with the thoughts of the runaway Premier League champions bolstering their squad with players of that quality and do you know a player we haven't even talked about Ferran Torres obviously has been in and out of the Spanish team at the Euros he's the kind of player that Pep Guardiola has had a season to work with 
and then he comes in next season and then starts banging in goals. That's what Guardiola can do with players. Dion, where do you sit on this? Because it's interesting reading some of the, the comments and the sentiments in the chat around, you know, the fact that if City keep buying these type of players, and I think, think Phil makes a great point, City traditionally seems to buy lots of £50 million players as opposed to that one or two kind of Galacticos, if you will. But, you know, there is concerns that, you know, with City continuing to strengthen and li- literally cherry-picking two of the best players in the league, um, you know, the, the Premier League could soon become like a Bundesliga, for example. Do you kind of share that viewpoint or do you still think that, you know, the likes of a Liverpool with, with players coming back, Manchester United now, uh, you know, rumoured to be signing Sancho, that deal looks looks to be done. Um, and Chelsea, certainly with the new manager, look like they will be um, a force moving forward. Do you still think there's a lot of competition to be had in the league? Um, I think... I think there's potentially a lot of competition, but I, I do think it's it's a real danger uh, that uh, and uh, uh, that Manchester City can dominate. I think for various reasons, um, that hasn't always been the case. But you know, a lot of it has been down. You know, up until last season, due to like an exceptional exceptional Liverpool side. Um, whether they can come back uh, remains to be seen. Like uh, you know, after last season, if the players, uh, you know, that is a, that is still a big if. Chelsea potentially, I still think United have quite a way to go um, if they if they want to challenge. Uh, and I look at the Harry Kane thing though. At the same time, I would think Spurs should should take that hundred million if it's if it's going. Like we're talking about how he's played in this tournament. We're talking about how international tournaments actually give you an opportunity because of um, of of the of the weakness of of the of some of the teams, and you're looking at Harry Kane, who is who is struggling through the tournament. So I think uh, Daniel Levy, like I think sometimes like, Daniel Levy maybe has has actually the most uh, overrated reputation in football for getting you know he, he like it, it, he's he's made some really bad decisions recently. Um, and he, I think he could redeem himself by taking taking whatever you know, taking a hundred million if if he can get it from City, taking that. And I would be, and if they if they can get Greedish, I yeah, there would they would be a really strong side then. But I think it, it will be interesting with Harry Kane because he isn't a Guardiola type of player, um, and you look at how Aguero kind of muscled his way into 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 Guardiola's kind of thoughts and he was never really the player that Guardiola sees sees as being part of what he believes football is, it should be um and I, I wonder like he's not going to spend sign well would he sign Harry Kane and then you know would he would he play him all the time or would he have him as the Aguero replacement for 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 good and for for bad, if you like, but uh, um, I would, um, if I was, if I was Tottenham, if I was Daniel Levy, I'd be thinking this is this is this is too good a deal to turn down. There's there's two other things that have that have come out, and, and you've touched on Daniel Levy and, and Ryan. I'm going to come to you on this one. Is the news that Rafa Benitez today has been named the Everton manager and. The blue, the blues tried to sweep this one under the carpet last night uh, when England were playing, and kind of released the news and hoped nobody would notice. Um, unfortunately, uh, yeah, didn't quite work. Um, and a lot of I've got a blue half of the family and a red half of the family, and the blue half of the family are not best pleased, shall we say? Um, what was your reaction when? You heard the news that Rafa Benitez was potentially in line to to be one of the uh, the options, and then ultimately the reaction that followed, and now the fact that the club have ignored that reaction from their fan base and ultimately appointed him anyway. I don't think any of it's a great surprise, really. Um, I think uh, what a lot of clubs are finding, I know it wasn't Everton's choice to lose their manager, but a lot of, a lot of the clubs who've changed manager this season, this summer rather, um, so Spurs, Palace and, and, and now with, with Ancelotti leaving, those clubs have found it difficult to, to find a manager, not just an upgrade, but on the level of the one they've, they've uh, let go in, in many ways. Um, I think that the market for 
uh, these sort of, without wishing to be disrespectful, the kind of mid-range clubs, not the elite of the elite, the, the, the clubs who are just a, t- a notch below that or, or aspiring to, to climb. You're going to get me in trouble with the blue side of my family. Now. Thanks, <laughs> but um, clubs, let, let's call them aspirational clubs, clubs who are looking, looking up okay. and, and like wanting, to, wanting to climb the ladder. Um, okay. I think they're finding it difficult to find a real good, good fit for, for them and their ambitions. And Spurs have struggled terribly, haven't they? And I do wonder whether... Benitez, as great as his record is and, and the trophies he's got on his CV, um, whether he can still be considered at the forefront of modern coaching. I think he um, he did well at Newcastle, but that was in a very specific set of circumstances where they were very much the underdogs and um, anything above scraping uh, survival for that club with the, with the way they were being run was going to be seen as a great bit of work. And, um, and he did through, through the organization he brought to them and, and which is, you know, is what he does is, is what he can still do to a very high level. Then, then they, he did, he does some really good work, but is that going to be enough for Everton? Uh, is somebody coming in, um, making them defensively resolute, but who perhaps doesn't have the the same kind of tactical chops we're seeing at the top end of the of the managerial spect- spectrum these days? Will that satisfy them, and where they're going to go? Um, I'm not so sure. Well, I think um, you know, regardless of who he's managed before, regardless of the fact that he's uh, he's he's spent a lot of time across Stanley Park. Um, if you look at him just purely as, as a manager and his his CV, maybe ten. 10 years ago or so, it had been a really great progressive signing, a, a sign of ambition. Um, but I think that time has probably passed a little bit. And I think just like players kind of wane towards the end of their career, we see it with managers too, that their ideas become a little bit stale. And, and I do, I do worry that, that Benitez is in that kind of phase now, whereby, um, the, the top end of, of the coaching, the, the elite of the elite have passed him by a little bit. So, um, I do wonder just how, how well this is going to work for, for all parties, really. Yeah, Phil, I think the one thing that's kind of come out of a, a lot of the um, the stuff that's been posted on social media, uh, particularly from an Everton side, is that they're ultimately not happy. But from more from a Liverpool side, it's been it's been a strange reaction. I mean, you know, some are, are massively supportive of Benitez and nearly wanting them to do well, which I'll be honest, I, I find a little mad. I mean, I'm, I'm a massive Rafa fan uh, for what he did to the club, what he done for the city, um, the support that he's shown local charities, um, the Hillsborough Justice campaign. He's been a fantastic uh, servant to the club and to the city. I have a fundamental problem with him going to Everton though. Something just doesn't sit right for me and it feels like he's tarnished his reputation with um, you know, a, a large section of the supporters. What do you think? Well, I think he might tarnish it if he does a good job at Everton. But I kind of, when I, this news broke, say this was leaked three weeks ago. This is like a classic politician behavior where they leak out things, see what kind of reaction it gets. And it got a terrible reaction. Somebody put a banner outside his house. Now, I would never condone that kind of behavior. And Everton have still gone ahead with it. And it's not as if Rafa Benitez is in his prime, where, you know, this is the hottest ticket in town. You, you know, you got to get this guy. He is the future of football. They could have got other managers. They could have gone down, a, you know, widen the, 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 the talent search and, get a younger manager and build something. Benitez is going to set them up very defensively, but also he has to hit the ground running straight away. He's swimming against the tide already and he needs to start winning games straight away. Phil Jagielka, the former Everton captain, was on TV today saying the exact same thing where he's already going in there and there's fans that want him to fail. So, which is a horrible position to be in as a supporter of a club where you don't agree with the managerial appointment and you're looking for failure from day one. Now, true Everton fans would say you support any manager at the club, but that's not the way football works. It's going to be very hard for a lot of Everton fans to look at Rafa Benitez and not think of what he did at Liverpool. He was just across the road, won the Champions League, won the FA Cup, obviously came very close to winning the Premier League. But in terms of Rafa Benitez... It didn't surprise me that he took the job. Um, you know, he, he obviously had a spell in charge of Chelsea as well. So he, he lives quite nearby. It makes perfect sense for him. It, he's going to have funds to invest. Uh, he didn't really always get that with Newcastle. But a three-year contract, I don't know how long he lasts. 
Yeah, it's a, it, it's definitely going to be an interesting one. And like you said, it, it, you know, if you've got fans that want you to fail before a ball's been kicked, imagine, you know, with fans being back as well uh, in, in in Goodison, um, it's it's not going to be a nice place for Rafa if if the if the games or results go against him. Dion, another club that has been in the news today, um, and we were asked uh, a couple of questions around it in the chat. Is our reaction to the news um, that Tottenham have finally found themselves a manager? It feels like they've interviewed every every man and his dog at this stage for the role and they finally uh, appointed the former Wolves manager. What's your thoughts on that appointment? And if you're Harry Kane looking at the mess that is that football club at the moment, surely you're looking to get out the door pretty quick. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think it's that... Uh, I, it's, it's not that exciting an appointment even for Tottenham. I don't think uh, like anyone who watched Wolves last season certainly wouldn't be like excited at the prospect of what's what Spurs are going to be, what, how Spurs will look this season. Um, so I don't think it's... Uh, it, do, it does just reek of a shambles. Shambles that began really with the appointment of Mourinho. Like, let's, you know, or if you want to say Pochettino leaving, although there was probably a, some argument for that at that stage, given the way his methods had sort of worn the players down. But, like, from the moment Mourinho was appointed, I think... Uh, it's been just a calamity for for Tottenham, and um, uh, I don't think this disappointment is really going to do anything to kind of get them back to where they were under Pochettino. Yeah, it it, it seems like uh, you know from a Liverpool f- fans' perspective, you know, I'm looking at some of the clubs uh, around us. Um, and I'm quite happy to see turmoil, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, and, and and I see maybe maybe I'm alone in this, but you know, Manchester United getting Jaden Sancho doesn't necessarily scream the fact that it fixes some of their long-standing issues. Um, you know, from from a Liverpool perspective, you, know, you see the likes of Everton bringing in a, a manager that the fans aren't happy with. It's kind of nice, Phil, to, for Liverpool to just they do their business under the radar. There doesn't seem too much, uh, you know, too much negativity around the club at the moment. And usually, when Liverpool are pretty quiet on the transfer fronts, that's when Michael Edwards does uh, pulls a little rabbit out of the hat. How are you feeling about you know where Liverpool are at at the moment, and 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 ultimately what the the rest of the summer will bring? Well, just talking about the likes of Everton and Spurs and the managerial appointments, Liverpool are just lucky to have one of the the best managers in, in the league. I mean, if you we talked about Pep Guardiola, Manchester City being a bit of a runaway train. The fact that Liverpool, I, the way I kind of feel going into every season is Manchester City should win the league every season. The fact that Liverpool beat them and they brought them to the last day of the season tells everything you need to know about Jurgen Klopp and just... What an amazing job he's done at Liverpool. But, you know, we spoke about this last week just in terms of what they need to do and haven't changed their mind. I think the midfield is is definitely... Genie Wijnaldum has to be replaced. And Renato Sanchez was a pair that came up last week. And again, he was he was very impressive in the in Portugal's defeat to Belgium. And he, he's a different type of player to, to Wijnaldum, but he's also a replacement in... And, you know, he gives you that. It's obviously, you've seen how hard he is to knock off the ball, which is a quality that Wijnaldum has. But also, Sanchez is a, uh, has a fairly decent shot on him as well. And he, he fits that age profile. And then you're looking at somebody into the, the front three because the options have to be stronger. Uh, we You know, we're talking about players that have done okay at the Euros, someone like Shakiri, But he's shown that he's not really a viable option to be a starter for Liverpool. You need... You've obviously got the the famous front three now. You've got Jota as part of that. Does Harvey Elliott come back in? And then you need you need something stronger in there as well, whether it's a young player that can be developed. You look at what Leicester did today. They signed Daka from Orby Salzburg. That's a great signing. A 22-year-old who has absolutely banging goals in the Austrian Bundesliga. People say, well, you know, it's not the highest standard, but look at the, the last prolific striker that Salzburg had. Erling Haaland, he's doing all right. I'm not comparing Daka and Haaland, but they definitely need to midfield and in attack. And I think we said maybe one more defender just to just to be safe. Um, but yeah, I, I think Liverpool will just having the fans back, but also having the likes of Erzo van Dijk back will just make things a lot more pleasant going into next season. 
Definitely. No, um, I know we're we're over the hour, so we'll uh, we'll we'll bring it to a close there, lads. Because as I said to you off air, and I'm going to get grief in the comments for this. My missus is waiting to watch Love Island with me after this. Um, and as I said to the lads, and Dion rightly pointed out, you know, there's no football on tonight, so you just got to you just got to play the game because I know that I'm going to be in the doghouse when the football is back. So uh, it's a necessary evil. What I would say just to finish on on the Liverpool transfers, I would much rather Liverpool go about their business quietly. Um, I don't want the the papers and the news outlets knowing um, ultimately who we're going to be after, who we're in talks with. Um, I know that fans can sometimes get restless when they see other clubs making signings, but Liverpool and, and their board um, and, and their transfer committee are have done a lot of good over the last few years. Um, and, and I think they've certainly earned their stripes um, and I'd be confidence come the end of the summer Liverpool will be uh, yeah we'll be in a strong position uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out now lads and um, before we wrap up uh, I just wanted to thank you all for your time today on Phil Ryan thank you for your time a, a big thank you to everybody in the chat for your brilliant comments as always if I can ask a quick favor of everybody if you can just like the video quickly um, and also leave a comment underneath the video let us know who who you've enjoyed watching in the Euros, who's been your standouts, who's let you down, um, who do you think is going to win it. Um, any engagement with the video at all will help spread the word, so please do get involved. Um, before we go, Ryan, um, you've got a new book that's coming out shortly, The Dream Factory, um, which takes takes us inside the, the world of football academies. Tell the listeners a little bit about your book and, and where they can find it. Yeah, thank you. So, like you said, it's called the Dream Factory inside the make or break world of football's academies. Uh, I've spent the last couple of years visiting academies all up and down uh, English football from the top of the top. So the likes of Liverpool, Man City, Man United, speaking to all the, the key figures there, all the way down to uh, the lower league levels and, and non-agency and all the, or how they all operate. Um, the premise of the book is basically to take a look at this emerging generation of young England players, so the Fodens, the Alexander Arnolds, the Rashfords, the Sanchos, and looking at how they've been developed, but also at what cost. So uh, that's both the financial cost and also the the, 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 uh, the very human cost and the attrition rates that we see and all the devastation that can be caused by a system that sucks in 12,000 young people and, and spits most of them out pretty unceremoniously. And uh, there's a lot of Liverpool interest there for, for the Liverpool fans. There's uh, very specific details of, of how Trent Alexander-Arnold was, was developed. I spoke with um, Neil Critchley and uh, Michael Beale and several other people who've had really hands-on experience with, with uh, Trent and his development um, so you learn all about how he was kicking balls all the way across the academy pitches when he was frustrated when he's first learning how to become a right back and how they got buy-in from him on that process and then just generally how, how Liverpool operate and how they do things in quite a unique way and quite a, a pioneering way in many respects so yeah it's all in there and it's, it's available on the 5th of August but, but please if it sounds of interest to you uh, you can pre-order it now so please uh, check it out Fantastic! I'll I'll definitely be doing that now. Um, yeah, with that, lads, it's it's Love Island time with uh, for me. So uh, I hope you all uh, hope you've all enjoyed the show. Uh, make sure you enjoy the rest of your week, and we will be back with you again next Wednesday on the Midweek Fix. All the best. Sports Social Podcast Network.